The talk tonight is about equanimity, holy equanimity. Most of you probably know the story of the four heavenly messengers. Uh, The quick version is that when uh, the Buddha-to-be was um, born into this fantastic palace as a young being, and um, his father wanted him to become king. And there was a prophecy when uh, he was born that he'd either become a great king or a great um, spiritual teacher. And so his father, the king, didn't want him to become the spiritual teacher, so he uh, tried to prevent his son, the prince Siddhartha, from seeing anything unpleasant. Um, you know, so that, you know, kind of hard to imagine, but uh, particularly his mother died when he was born. It's not that he didn't have pain, but his father really tried to prevent him seeing anybody old, anybody sick, or anybody dead. So like whenever he'd be around the palace, that was not allowed uh, to be seen. And he was also not allowed to go out beyond the palace walls. There was a you know, palace for the summer, winter, and rain. So he was just kind of kept enclosed in these uh, very protected environments. And then it said that a deva, uh, a, a guardian angel, uh, came and uh, helped him kind of go beyond uh, the palace walls. And three times he had gone out with this charioteer, and uh, the charioteer wanted him to see this stuff, this deva. So he first he saw someone old, and it was so it was it so freaked him out that he couldn't go on to you know, like he was wanting to see something beyond his known world and to see something beautiful, and it freaked him out so bad he went back to the palace, and it said at that point. Uh, that the vanity of youth left him. And then the second time, you know, the deva helped conjure up somebody sick, and uh, it said that the vanity of health left him. And then the third, when he saw somebody dead, it was like, oh, (laughs) same thing happened, but then when he got back, it was like the vanity of life left him. The vanity. It's such a beautiful expression, the vanity of youth, the vanity of health, the vanity of life. And then he went out a fourth time, and this deva conjured up a renunciate. Uh, and it, it's such a beautiful description. It's like he, it said he saw someone more peaceful than peace itself. Someone more peaceful than peace itself. And, you know, this is what led him on this incredible search for the truth. And, you know, to, to just like kind of live out that prophecy, that destiny, the, all the lifetimes, the eons of um, perfecting the paramis so that he could become fully liberated, but also, you know, to be able to teach. 
I think that we all can reflect back on our life and, and remember the times where we were really affected by someone peaceful. You know, that, like how inspiring it is uh, to, to just know that that's possible. Uh, and it, it's like these beings are like a lighthouse for us. You know, they're like, like they help us find our way. When I was in um, my freshman year of college in Springfield, Massachusetts, I had a professor that uh, was a Quaker. And he um, was this amazing botanist, naturalist, environmental educator, way ahead of his time. Um, very joyful being. And it was at the time of, you know, the Vietnam War demonstrations, you know, whether you were drafted or didn't go, you know, just like that whole time period. And in Springfield, there were ghetto riots. There were all kinds of, you know, very painful things going on. And uh, (laughs) there was uh, this movement of the Black Panthers to, like, take over a dorm. You know, and things were really heating up. Uh, and a lot of professors quit. Uh, so it was sort of like right at this time, like peaking, and you know, like peaking this like possibility of so much violence. Um, and he really put his time in in terms of uh, suffering. You know, he had this amazing greenhouse in the back of uh, where he had his um, classroom, and. Uh, there, this was a place, this part of the campus, there was a lot of drinking. And, you know, people would just throw their beer bottles out of the window and hit them on the head. And the, just the garden would fill <laughs> with beer bottles. And he never complained, you know. He just, like, he so knew his path. He so knew his path as nonviolent. He so knew his path um, so deeply. But he was so shaken by what was going on. You know, so he wasn't indifferent. He was so connected and so shaken. And I remember, you know, the place just felt like it was just going to blow up. And there was a little sign went on his uh, door that said, uh, gone for the day. (laughs) It wasn't like gone forever or, you know, gone for the semester. It was just like gone for the the day. And he went out into the woods for the day, came back completely peaceful, totally connected, but just knowing who he was and knowing he believed in nonviolence and so sure, a hundred percent, no doubt. And that energy just really um, helped me to see. It's like, you know, your heart knows what it knows, right? My heart knew what it knew, but it just like having that reflected to me, just that, that possibility of staying um, not reactive, not indifferent, but open and just continuing on the path. And so, you know, he was one of the first beings I had ever met that re- really reflected he wasn't a monk or a nun, but he was truly a peaceful being. You know, and these beings, again, are very powerful for us. 
before um, the California Meditation Center Spirit Rock was uh, built, uh, there were many retreats in the desert, uh, Joshua Tree, a huge place, big retreats. Uh, and it, the place was set up so that everybody would have their shoes. I think there were 140 people at this retreat, and all the shoes would be outside the building in the desert. Um, and this night, you know, we all went in for the Dhamma talk, and, you know, the teachers left first. <laughs> and we went out, everybody's shoes were stolen. It was like, it was so weird, right? You know, it's just like, I was first, and I'm like, it wasn't even like, where are my shoes? It's like, where are anybody's shoes, you know? And it was like, everybody, you know, and it wasn't like everybody was really peaceful about it. The teaching team, it was like, where are my shoes, you know? And, uh, <laughs> and the yogis, you know, it was like starting to get like, and then... <laughs> This monk was at the retreat, and he went. He came out, and he looked at me, and he went. <laughs> it was so great. It was like, and it was like, oh well, you know, no shoes. And he just, there was no. It was seamless. It was amazing. Just like, now where are my shoes? It was just like, no shoes. Okay. (laughs) So this is called holy equanimity because it's so rare. It's rare for all of us. It's no matter what type you are, no matter how much practice you've done, it's like this equanimity, unconditional acceptance, nonviolence, is considered... um, something that just takes time to ripen. And it's much more like if you plant a tree and you wait for it to grow and to have fruit, especially before the hybrids, you know, just like it just takes time and you you just put in your time. And uh, the best example that I can give for like what that process is like is if you looked at all the different flower buds here and you notice when a flower starts to unfurl or open it's like just that metaphor that we don't just get to open to the pleasure so we we want to open so much to how things are how things are how things are you know you've heard it the, the, you know, it's like it's impermanent, it's uncontrollable, you know, there's no, <laughs> not personal. It's like, oh yeah, the longing, the longing that we have to be free is so deep and it's so pure. You know, anytime I really get in touch with that longing in myself, I cry. It's just like, and in someone else, or for all of us, it's just that longing is so pure. And then when we attempt to really be here, you know, and connect with how it is, it's just like, and that this that that process of 
getting fooled again and again that we just, we want so much for pleasure to last. (laughs) And we want so much for pain to go away. And we're just like pretty bored by the neutral. You know, just that, (laughs) it's like, oh, okay. You know, and just that remembering, you know, why am I doing this? You know, just that unconditional peace is so um, fragile. And yet you'll see over time that it becomes more accessible. But it certainly doesn't happen by making it happen. And, that, you know, and it can't because it's holy. It's actually pure. It's like it's, you can think of it always as a kind of grace that comes. Because how can it be? Greed can't possibly coexist with peace. You know, greed... Aversion and peace, they just, they don't coexist in that, you know, if we're not wanting something to, you know, be happening that's happening, if we're afraid, that isn't this purity of, it's okay. It's okay just the way it is. You know, it requires so much mindfulness. It requires so much interest, yeah? It requires that ability to see clearly. Oh, it's just unpleasant. You know, and that that remembering, that's the instruction this morning, yeah, just like remembering that we can be like, oh, yeah, it's just wanting the pleasant to last pleasant, you know, liking, liking, not liking, not liking. And sometimes it takes these very, like, intense times on practice I always joke about, you know, that it's called intensive meditation. And, you know, we get on retreat, you know, and we completely forget that we signed up for an intensive. You know, it's intensive because it's intense, you know. And you can't, like, you can't um, slip around that one. And the longer we're on a retreat, the more intensive it gets. So the experience that seems so much like equanimity and isn't, and this is what's so important, it seems so much like it is indifference. Whatever, whatever, right? You know, it's like it's almost feels like it, but it'll be like it doesn't matter. I don't really care. You know, it's like, or numbness. Passivity, denial, naivete, all these things that can look like it looks like we're okay. And remember, it's this morning, it's like we're so good at that one. And it doesn't mean that that's bad or wrong. It's like there's so many times where we really, you really do have to suck it up, right? You know, you just to function in the world, you do. And it's not like it's a bad thing. I always joke if you go into surgery, and somebody is about to do surgery on you. Do you want them to have a, you know, a breakdown right there? No. You want them, if they had a bad day, you want them to what? Pull it together. You don't mind if they pretend that they're like, okay, right? You want them to pretend, you know? It's like, of course. That's like, or your mom when you were a kid. It's like bad day, but 
you still want dinner. So all of these things, it's, you know, and a cook here, you know, it's like, okay, they had a bad day, but, you know, this is the thing that we, try, we need to remember that sense that, you know, it's that, you know, classic. You come out of retreat, you start reading a newspaper, and it's like, ah, you know, like that closing, right? It's like the heart can't handle anymore unpleasant. And it just, it's like, okay. But what's different with mindfulness is you start noticing it. So rather than going, don't do that, it's much more that it becomes what? A choice. Freedom is choice. And so that what's hard is when we get stuck in these archetypes, or we get stuck in these identities. So we can get stuck in an indifferent identity, or we can get stuck in a reactive identity. We can get, you know, it's like that numbness, we get stuck in it, whatever it is, it's like there's no choice. So when we come on a retreat, again, it's that that starting to open to, when we open to pleasure, we also open to pain. When we open to pain, we also open to neutral. It's like you don't get to pick and choose. And it's so similar to the weather. Sun, rain, darkness, light. It's like, and it's, it's also um, so powerful to be on a retreat and to go through the ups and downs and boring times again and again and again and again. That's how equanimity ripens. It's the same in the life. We go through them again and again. And on retreat, it's like an incubator. You're going through it again and again and again. And it's that sense of um, one aspect of insight and liberation is disenchantment. It's, it's disenchantment with this pleasure-pain syndrome. And it's like learning that, you know, it's like experience isn't going to yield what we want it to yield. It's not certainly not going to be eternal. You know, we want relationships to be eternal. We want whatever. It's like our bodies to be eternal or someone else's body or, you know, whatever it is we want eternal. It's like... Um, that disenchantment from that naivete is so important. And it can be a grief process. It's like the grief process. You know, if you remember, I remember when I was a really little kid. It happened earlier for me maybe than most. But I remember when, you know, my dad had done something just a few too many times, and I realized he wasn't perfect. You know, you must, we all remember that place, right? Where it's like, it was so crushing. You know, it's just like, oh, you know, oh, he's not perfect. <laughs> Again, it's so hard to face that. Oh, and then it's like you slowly realize, oh, I'm not perfect. No one's perfect. When you come on retreat, you start to realize that it's so um, fleeting. So equanimity is when the heart is actually 
not only partially, but completely connected, but understands. So the, it's a paradox, and it, again, this is all so hard for us. It, the paradox is that we're completely connected, but we completely understand that the experience isn't, isn't permanent, or we completely understand that it's, it's, it's out of our control, or we completely understand it's unreliable and that it's not lasting. And it's completely uh, not ours, or me, or mine. There was a period of my practice that um, my my body was appearing kind of like, it felt like champagne bubbles, like just like so light and bubbly and uh, you know, it lasted for a while, and of course, you know, I thought it was going <laughs> to, I thought this was it, okay, this is going to last, right, forever, I didn't know, you know, and kind of rolling along in this, kind of for a while, and then it disappeared, and I could get, like, okay, <laughs> it's impermanent, you know, I could get, it was like out of my control, but it was my champagne bubbles, you know, it was like, <laughs> that non-identification was like, my bubbly body, <laughs> you know, I couldn't, like, it was so painful to let it go, you know, it felt so good, you know, and it felt like I went back to, like, cement, you know, heavy cement, you know, and it, it was, uh, it took a while for me to accept that, because I related to it as mine. The first three-month retreat I taught here, there was a um, man that came that uh, was his first retreat, and it was three months. In those days, you you didn't have to do a preliminary. (laughs) It was only later we figured out that wasn't a good idea. (laughs) Took us a long time to figure it out. like the window policy. (laughs) That took probably 25 years. Uh, (laughs) And he had so much restlessness. You know, it was incredible, just like day after day of restlessness. And, you know, we started talking about it, and he just started to go for walks, but really far. So he would walk to a town called Athol, from here. I'm not kidding. Every day. And recently I had a neighbor look it up. It's 13 miles one way. Every day he'd walk to Athol. Of all the places to go to, (laughs) you know, Athol. (laughs) Um, And then after a while he started stopping at the Peterson Country Store. And I knew the owner of it, and one time I went in there, and uh, it was like two months into the retreat by this point, and he said, oh, Michelle, hi, you know, hi, and he said, do you know that you have this yogi that's like stopping here every day on his way to Athol? And I'm like, <laughs> tattletale. 
And I'm like, no. And I, I said, well, what does he do when he comes in here? And he said, he just looks lovingly at all the potato chips and pretzels. <laughs> and he walks back and forth, like looking at all the cucumbers. And he just like spends a lot of time in here looking at things. And I said, well, does he do anything bad? You know, that you, you know, he's like, no, it seems pretty harmless. I'm, He's like, is this okay? <laughs> is he okay? <laughs> it was so great, you know. <laughs> so I bought my pretzels and left. <laughs> Over the course of year, some years, you know, he came back a few times, came back a few times, and it was amazing. Maybe two years later, he came to a three-month retreat. No restlessness. A lot of aversion. Just so much aversion. He hated everybody here. Like, everybody. Like, everything was triggering him. You know, and all that walking, you know, was protecting him, right? It, the restlessness, it was like, that was, that was good. And it was good that he took that space. And then that, all that aversion, whew, you know, and then maybe a, a couple of years later, um, he hit this equanimity. And he'd come in and he'd describe this valley of contentment. A valley of contentment. And it was like it lasted so long and it was so powerful. And then maybe a couple of years later, he came again and uh, he's like, what happened to my valley of contentment? <laughs> you see, we want these things to be permanent, and it lasted so long, and it didn't last. And I'm like, you know, you're moving on. You're growing. You're going to hit more stuff. And it's like how you get liberated. And it's like, uh, it's a long story, you know, but just one of the last times he came and I taught that retreat, he came in to every interview, and he would just look down and a little tear would come down his eyes. And he would just be so grateful. Just really quiet, really grateful. You know, and so it's just like that was over quite a many, many years. Uh, you know, and it's like when we know whatever we're going through, however we're doing a retreat, it's like if we can be okay with whatever's happening, if we really get that, if we can be there with it and learn from it, that that's how you learn equanimity. And it does not matter. This is where we get deceived over and over again. We get deceived thinking that the experience that's happening matters more than the relationship with it. And it, this, is, this is the only way this holy equanimity really, really develops, is by learning this, by being deceived and then learning. And it's really like holding a hot potato and dropping it. The hot potato is attachment to any experience. And dropping it, you know, and just like when you drop it, you'll, you know, you've already, you wouldn't even be in this room if you haven't tasted equanimity. And you, you know, it's like you wouldn't be in this room if you didn't know what it's like to be, hold on to it. Because it feels wonderful. Being okay, not fake equanimity, but truly understanding that things are as they are, you know, it's the truth. 
And I, I love the word truth because, you know, it's so funny. It's the truth. It's, you know, it's like we know. The heart knows when something is true. And when we're connected to it, it feels wonderful. So one of the um, distinguishing characteristics of equanimity is that there's no resistance to what's happening whatsoever. It, it's, it's, and that's what feels so wonderful. It's like, that, it's like we're transparent. And even if something's painful, you know, or pleasurable or neutral, again, it's like it's that lack of, it's that, no, not this, which is, it's that, yes, okay. And sometimes it is like it's a begrudging, okay. But that's like that begrudging, okay, is the beginning of kind of shifting to, oh, let's see if I can learn a relationship with this. Fairly soon in my practice, a lot of lower back pain appeared, like really intense. <laughs> and then, you know, over time it became the ring of fire, you know, the Pacific Ocean, where, you know, there's that whole <laughs> volcanic area all the way, you know, the whole ring around the Pacific Ocean. That's what I called my back, you know, from my neck down to the lower back. Um, and for so many years I kept thinking, you know, it would come and go, and when it would go, I'd think, okay, that's it. It's going to last forever. And it didn't. You know, it would come and go and come and go. And I, I learned more about freedom with this than anything. Because it was just like, when it would come back, it would be like, how am I relating to this? Because freedom is, has nothing to do with whether something comes back or not. And that is really hard for us. So that filter, when we, when we attempt to be with what's happening, when it's through the filter of aversion and attachment, when we realize that that's reinforcing aversion and attachment, you start understanding pace and patience on a whole different level. You just, you know, in, in all of, every one of us has talked about it this retreat, but it's that reminder that when we notice that we're investigating or exploring through that filter, it's really not pure exploration. You know, it's that agenda that comes in and the expectation. And it takes time again to, again, whether we're with ourselves and another person out in the world, or ourselves with ourselves, ourselves in our own experience, or another, when there's an agenda, when there's expectation, it kills connection. There's that um, great Rio Khan poem that most of us know so deeply, the clouds have drifted away and the weather is clear again. Abandon this world, abandon yourself, and then the moon and the flowers will guide your way. You know, that, that, that line, the clouds have drifted away, that's our mind. That's the, that's the filter of aversion and attachment, and the weather is clear again. 
that's equanimity. And so we, we, we start understanding that there's a rhythm of this until we're fully enlightened. It's said that a fully enlightened being has what they call six-limbed equanimity. Six-limbed meaning at the six sense doors, moment by moment, there's peace. And when we, we, when we get the glimpse of this kind of grace, you know, the grace hits um, and we get that that's possible. It's, you know, it's like the means and ends in this practice are the same. You know, it's just that we might not have quite as many mind moments of peace as a fully enlightened being, but it's the same peace. It's the same seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, and thinking. It's the same thing. It's just that, you know, they're doing it a little bit more than we are. <laughs> you know, but it's like when there's peace, there's peace. It's, it's uh, the truth. There was a great teacher in Thailand, um, an uh, Ajahn, great teacher, venerable. Uh, his name was Ajahn Mun, and he had a really good friend called Luang Pu, another great Ajahn, not as well known. They were best friends. And he had a remote monastery, and there was a monk that was sort of being kind of sent from monastery to monastery because nobody could really deal with him and nobody could handle his presence. So he was finally sent to Luang Pu's monastery. Um, and so the other monks were really upset that he allowed this monk to come stay there. And he said, um, whatever level a monk has reached. As far as I'm concerned, he's welcome to dwell there. Very interesting. He didn't say here. Whatever level a monk has reached, as far as I'm concerned, he's welcome to dwell there. As for me, I dwell with knowing. So then the monks were still upset, wasn't... They didn't get, you know, that wasn't a satisfying answer. <laughs> I was like, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> we want you to get, you know, get rid of this guy. <laughs> so they asked him to explain what dwelling with, know- with knowing was like. And he said, knowing is the normality of mind that is empty, bright, pure, that has stopped fabricating, stopped searching, stopped all mental motions, having nothing, not attached to anything at all. Stopped fabricating, stopped searching, stopped all mental motions, having nothing, not attached to anything at all. So sometimes we taste that. And what happens when it disappears? We just, oh, 
it's the most painful thing. If you taste that and as you're sitting or walking and it starts to go and you have a deep aspiration to be free, that's the most painful of all. It's just like, it just seems so unfair that it's impermanent, you know? It seems like it should last, right? And we take it personally. I had a retreat that I did two months of loving-kindness in Australia. Um, I had done a lot of Vipassana practice already. And uh, I was sort of just doing these phrases, may you be happy, you know, that whole practice. And um, it was winter in Australia, um, and it was so cold that I just would go around. I, went, I walked around with a sleeping bag <laughs> around me. It was really cold, and I was allergic. To, you know, this is usually the, my karma. You know, I was allergic to my room. I was allergic to the meditation hall. Um, so I set up my seat so that I was, like, pretty much almost hanging out my window. And uh, I couldn't eat in the dining room. I was allergic. Uh, and I, so, like, it was, and I had, oh, yeah, this is important. I had all my clothes on all the time because it was, I was really cold and that's all I had. And so, you know, I'm kind of doing this week after week, maybe be happy, maybe be peaceful, all this stuff, you know, in parentheses here. Uh, this is a, a convent and this priest lived there, you know, and um, he got a new puppy and he lived right below me. Talk about having trouble with equanimity, right? So there's this new puppy down below that he's training, and I'll never forget it. His, the puppy's name was Fritz. <laughs> you know, and Fritz, I still think of Fritz like and my nervous system goes ballistic. It's like, <laughs> it was incredible. All I heard was Fritz, Fritz, <laughs> sit, Fritz, Fritz, stop, no, don't do that, Fritz, Fritz, all day and all night, Fritz, Fritz. And I'm like, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, you know? <laughs> I'm going to kill that tub, you know. <laughs> it was so hard. And so, you know, week after week, I'm starting to get some balance. Sometimes, you know, I was protected and it was rolling on, you know, and pretty much it was when Fritz was out for a walk. Really. <laughs> a little self-deception going, but, you know, <laughs> pray for Fritz to go for a walk so I can feel some meta. Oh, it was hard. Um, <laughs> Go down. I'll take him for a walk. <laughs> a long walk. <laughs> oh, so anyway, you know, I was sort of on a roll that day, you know, and I'm going along, and um, <laughs> we had corn chowder that day, and it was unforgettable too. And I was so hungry, and it was so cold, and I bring my precious little bowl of corn chowder into my room. And I'm really like in the phrases, right? Maybe happy, maybe peaceful. And um, I put the bowl of corn chowder on my seat. And then I got distracted. I like, (laughs) I don't know what I did, right? Like, who knows? I probably wrote down something like having a great time. (laughs) Fritz is gone. There's some corn chowder, you know. I probably wrote it down with exclamation mark, you know. And then... I turned around and I sat in my soup. <laughs> I sat in my soup. This is after I'd been sitting since 1975. This was 1990. Can, can you imagine like the self-hatred, like the self-judgment? It was like, 
oh my god it was so shocking i sat in my soup oh and the repercussions it's like should i wash my sweatpants or should i let them stink for the rest of the retreat it was a really hard decision you know and just it was so shocking and so humbling what do you do like you have to begin again you know it's just like Okay, sat in my soup. <laughs> it's okay, you know, and it's like you just will find you'll go, whatever, right? It's like indifference. It's like I don't care if I sat in my soup. <laughs> Nobody knows but me, you know, just like that whole thing. And it's like ah, I sat in my soup, you know. It's just like that went on, you know, and that intensity. It's like the more you sit, the more you have your own stories of this. And you get to see, it's like IMS. It's like, I can't tell you how many window wars there were, really, and teacher meetings. We had year after year of teacher meetings of how to deal with the windows, you know, and what to tell people. And it might sound like, this isn't important. How can this be important? But actually, the roots of war are in our hearts. You know, and it's like, we're facing the roots of the deep greed that we see in the world. We're facing the deep war that's on the world. And you would see it, like especially the longer retreats, the territory at IMS becomes our territory. And you start to see that out in the world gets less you know, memorable. And then what's happening with us here, that's why it's intense. So it used to be, I don't even know what they do anymore, but at the bowling alley downstairs, there used to be this bare light bulb that hung down. And some people wanted it on. (laughs) And some people wanted it off. And there was no policy about it, right? And then, you know, one month into the retreat, a maintenance person on staff said to me, Michelle, What's happening to all the light bulbs (laughs) in the bowling alley? Figure it out. The people who didn't want the light on kept taking the light bulbs. (laughs) An interesting, you know, solution, but, you know, (laughs) it doesn't fix it, right? And it's, it's like, I remember when Sayada Upandita came here in the window wars, there was still no policy. And he was just so flabbergasted. He finally came in the hall. And he sounded just kind of like, wow, Westerners sure are weird. You know? And he, he said, if the window's open, please leave the window open. And if the window's shut, please leave the window shut. Right? It just like for him, that was so much common sense. But for us, it's like that whole sense of individuality and just like kind of working it out. And so, yeah, we worked out, we try to fix it so that there isn't that extreme of like somebody opens it, somebody closes it so so much, but we still get it, yeah? That sense of like, how do we navigate through being able to not be passive and be a doormat, yeah? and also respect the needs of others. This is an art of a lifetime. Any of the fully enlightened beings or close, you know, really free of aversion and attachment, if you look in their eyes, 
you don't see that they've avoided anything. It's like they've faced everything. You know, and it's like, you get a sense. It's like, how can we really be helpful to other beings? It's like, can we help everybody? Can we help some beings? And it will always come from your own wisdom, from your own attachment. It won't come. If, somebody's, if somebody came in this room and they were afraid, or if somebody comes in the room and they're angry, or if they feel betrayed, or if they're happy. It's like, how do we relate to that? Well, the more experience we have with our own being, then we're going to be able to be more helpful. And the more we think that we got rid of all this stuff, we're not going to be helpful. Srinazargadatta Maharaj, uh, the Indian saint, um, was asked, you know, upon his realization, what, can you tell us anything about it? And he said, oh yes, I felt complete, I feel completely undeceived. And what an interesting word, undeceived, undeceived, undeceived by reality. So in, if we look at those, um, the near enemy, the experience that seems so much like indifference, I mean, that seems so much like equanimity, but isn't, um, you could say that equanimity isn't, it's like an impartiality. It's not indifferent, but we're impartial. And that it takes time to develop a taste for the impartiality. Impartiality means just what I said. If, if there's fear, fine. If there's happiness, fine. If there's boredom, fine. If there's great peace, fine. Because we've developed, we know this, we have, the, we have the skillful means. We have the ability, the upaya. It's, upaya is the Pali word for skillful means. We have the ability to apply mindfulness, concentration, equanimity, or move away to the anchor if we can't be with something. In my last self-retreat, there was, you know, a period of time, I'm not sure if it was uh, half, like, halfway through the first week, but it was really interesting. One day, like, this aversion was coming up, and there was just such a strong part of me that said, you know what? I'm really not interested in aversion today. And it was so great. It's like, oh, so, you know, my, you know, rather than go, that's not okay, it's like, okay, I'm not going to force it. I'll just, like, be light and not try to bear down in it. And that's, that's indifference, right? I'm not interested in this. And then the, the next day it got even more intense, and it was like this part of my mind, it went on strike. And there was a sign that said, no more insight. 
no more insight, no more insight. And it was like walking back and forth in my head. And I was like, whoa, wow, okay. <laughs> back off, okay, light, be ordinary. It's like that's my hardest thing. And I've really had to learn to go, okay, lighten up. Just walk in an ordinary way. Sit ordinary. Just be here lightly. And it shifted. Got interested again. But it was like, in the way in the past, I would have just just stepped on the gas like a kamikaze pilot. Totally overrode it. And it was like the effort and the striving. It's like the striving would take over rather than the effort being skillful means. It's like, you know, (laughs) striving isn't effort's fault. You know, it's like it's not the same thing. But it can get so mixed up for us. So it's just that sense of like, where does the effort really need to go? Well, it needs to go with listening and, and skillful means. Oh, really didn't. Oh. You know, there's so many uh, interesting things that when I first was teaching the three month retreat, I had a student come that, um, whose house had burned down. And it was just like, it was like everything was gone. And also, he, you know, his relationship ended, his marriage had ended. And he came here and he was, oh, it was so intense. And he came in for an interview and he handed me his car keys. And this was a three-month retreat. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> He's like, I don't, I'm going to run away from here. And then a month into it, he came into my interview room and he gave me the battery to his car. <laughs> and I was like, okay, you know, you're going to jumpstart your car and get, you know, he really just like knew he couldn't do it without giving me his car battery, you know, and, and that's kind of extreme. <laughs> but, you know, that's what was happening for him. Um, and, you know, it reminded me of this book I read, Woman in the Polar Night, recently, where um, this woman went way up north, really close to the North Pole, way back, in, you know, this was, what, 1933. You know, no down equipment, no fleece, you know, and up there um, with her husband. And she wasn't an adventurer. She was a housewife that just happened to um, have a husband that didn't come home and fell in love with it up there. And no one thought she was going to make it a year up there. <clears throat> and she went through so much. It's like, she, you know, her husband and his friend like would go off for a couple weeks and just the storms, the storms, and her, the fear of the bear, bears and the fear of the dark. Um, was just like it would have, it just nearly did her in. But just that capacity, that resiliency, that capacity to keep showing up for it and to, to like tune into the beauty of it all as well as the, the difficulty. It's like, um, again, just no one thought she was going to survive it. And when she got back, a doctor, you know, examined her and he said of her, He'd never seen anything like it. He called what she was experiencing imperturbable peace. 
imperturbable peace. And interestingly enough, soon after that, her family home burned down, and she had she was totally okay with it. And she said later, you know, that in the old days, people would go to the desert to like try to find this deeper, deep something deeper than life and death. You know, something deeper that we all long for. Um, and she said that maybe in the future, it'll be the polar you know, way up in the polar part, just that that would be one of the last wildernesses for us. Last year we had a young adult retreat on the land, um, on the big island that we're hoping to have more of a center on. Um, So we have tent retreats there. And uh, when we're there, it's really interesting because, you know, we sit up, sit under a huge tent that for the meditation hall, and then there's a big tent for the dining room. And that's it, you know, people have their tents. And whenever I sit down and we're out there with the wind or the rain or the sun, it's like um, there's just this really strong feeling like, oh, yeah, at the Buddhist time, people were sitting outside. And, you know, it's like that connection to wind or rain or the sound of the leaves, you know, blowing in the wind. It's like it's so easy to say, well, just in the instructions, it's like just just see if you can relate to your thoughts coming and going like the sound of the wind. And it's so palpable. You know, it's just like very much getting, oh, at the time of the Buddha, I'm sure it was hard because we didn't, you know didn't have these cushions or protection on the one hand, but it certainly speeds up the discomfort or the comfort. You know, it speeds it up, and then you kind of have to go through this process of opening to dark, light, rain, wind, and coming to more and more peace with it. So at the end of this retreat, there were two young young men that, you know, both of them had really hard lives already. And uh, at the end of, end of the retreat, this one, one of the older kids said, said, and for, said to us, you know, thank you for giving me the right to know the truth. The right. And this other kid, 13, and he was sent there (laughs) by his grandmother um, to watch out for his older sister there. Like, he he was sent to make sure his older sister didn't run away. Can you imagine, you know, coming to a retreat like this and really only being there to make sure your older sister doesn't run away? That's a hard thing, right? You know, the motivation isn't exactly sky high. You know, it's like kind of not that... Not that it wasn't an easy job anyway. And, you know, it was so interesting to watch, watch him, like, try to keep surrendering, surrendering to a situation he didn't want to be in. And one night, he had this kind of not-such-a-good tent, and it poured rain and poured rain. Um, and I came by in the morning, and I could see him. Everyone else had walked to the tent to do the meditation for the morning instructions. And I saw him, 
kind of pulling things out of his tent, and I went over to him and I said, um, kind of a wet night. <laughs> and he's like, yeah. And I said, you know, and often with the teen retreats, you kind of, some kids just don't want to come to the sitting. And I was just checking. I said, are you going to come to the meditation this morning? And he said, you know what? I'm a little bit frustrated. <laughs> and that's how he did it. He was like, I'm a little bit frustrated. You know, but I'm trying to be mindful of it. And I'm going to come. And it was just like so moving to me. It's like, oh my God, like how many knocks against you can you have? Like in a way, like, you know, don't, not, didn't want to even come to this retreat. Like there to kind of protect his sister, in an, in, which is pretty impossible, gets totally rained out. All his clothes are wet. Most kids don't even want to come to the sitting. And he's like, I'm a little bit frustrated, but I'm really trying to be mindful with it. And yeah, I'm going to come. There's a great chant that means all conditioned things are arising and passing away. Understanding this brings the greatest kind of happiness, which is peace. All things are arising and passing away. Understanding this is the greatest kind of happiness, which is peace. And it's a, it's a beautiful sounding chant. Anicca meaning impermanence, sukha, sukho is happiness. Anicca vata sankara upatuva yadamino upakituva niruchanti desam upasumo sukho Anicca vata sankara upatuvaya damino upakituva niruchanti desam upasumo sukho. Let's sit for a minute. There's no greater happiness than peace. 
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.